Professor, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you. Now, uh, Professor, many years ago in 2000, you wrote an article entitled Property Rights and the Human Body, in which you explored the property rights that one has in him or herself um, in tort litigation, as well as the property rights one has in others for the purposes of tort litigation. Can you discuss that a bit? Uh, yes. Well, um, I, I suppose I was motivated by where the law stands today on property rights in the human body. And we just had a scandal connected to that just a few days ago because there's a person who's at Harvard Medical School who was selling the body parts of bodies that were given to Harvard Medical School for research. Um, so, you know, what's, and, and then there are underground markets for body parts as well. I mean, organs and tissue, body parts. And what's happening is that because of technology and the, and the improvement in transplantation technology, body parts are worth a lot of money now. They're quite valuable. You can save lives with body parts. Uh, and of course, if people uh, die with healthy organs and the body just goes into, into the ground, you know, that can be what maybe half a million or a million dollars worth of body parts that are just thrown into the ground. So that, that creates this enormous possibility of a black market out there that you have to assume given human ingenuity, people are trying to find ways to exploit. Uh, so that raises questions about what we what we can do. Um, and one of the things that uh, we should consider is of course, recognizing those rights that people have to their own body parts, um, allowing within limits people to be able to enter into contracts in which they essentially sell those body parts, give someone else a right to them. Um, that would hopefully go some way toward uh, reducing the black market that presumably exists already. I don't know anything about the black market myself, but presumably does exist since we just had a scandal at Harvard Medical School just a few days ago involving the sale of body parts. Um, so we could do something to reduce the scale of this black market. We could also make more organs available for transplantation. That would reduce the number of people who are sitting on waiting lists to receive organs and dying while they're sitting on waiting lists. Uh, and I think there's a lot to be said for moving that, that direction. Um, and of course, one of the problems is you have uh, medical ethicists who are basically arguing against any kind of contracts for the sale of body parts which uh, re results paradoxically in just in, in, to, in the existence of the black market instead, instead of having instead of having an ethical result, you know, the result of these ethical arguments is to produce an unethical result, uh, which often is the paradox that sometimes people don't realize it happens. Um, but so that was that's what motivated me to write, the, you know, to write on these questions about uh, body parts and markets. Uh, but tort, you know, tort law already recognizes some limited uh, property in a person's body. Of course, you know, if you're injured you can and you suffer bodily injury, of course, you can receive damages. Uh, and if, if, the body, if the body of a close relative is harmed or treated badly, uh, that's treated as a quasi-property right of those survivors and they can sue for damages. 
but I guess I, what I was thinking of, what I was writing about, first of all, in that piece that you're referring to, I was just trying to lay out the law as it exists on property rights in, in the body, uh, but also consider, but also is part of a bar, larger project in which I've argued that we ought to recognize, we ought to recognize broader property rights in the body for certain utilitarian reasons. Now, the concern is to limit black market sale. Mm -hmm. And is criminalization not sufficient? Certainly, these activities are criminalized. You can go to yes. jail, right, for these things. Is That's that, right. as your research has shown, insufficient to remedy the issue? Well, I think it is insufficient. And I would cite the example of Harvard Medical, Medical School only a few days ago. Um, I mean, you know, okay, so if some person who's got a position at Harvard Medical School is selling body parts, then you'd have to imagine it's happening in other places as well. Um, so no, I don't think the criminalization has been sufficient. And I think, uh, and you could imagine an analogy, you could say, well, suppose you get rid of tort rights to all individuals. They, they didn't have any right to sue for bodily injury, but only the state brings criminal, criminal claims in that case, well, you can see the the problem that would arise because the state wouldn't always be as diligent as it should be in enforcing those laws. And so people would be injured and they wouldn't have a right to bring suit. To some extent, it's the same way, you know, you could say with the, the body parts issue with uh, and property rights and body parts that right now it's it's the state that goes after the black market in body parts. But maybe it'd be a different thing if individuals had rights to those body parts, uh, had enforceable claims to those body parts, uh, had enforceable rights to sue against, uh, to sue for those, those, those claims. Um, and uh, of course, um, people who felt they had an interest in entering the black market such as this person who was just arrested in Harvard Medical School, might find that they could satisfy their own interests or their own interests in a market legitimately just by entering into the market for transplantable organs uh, directly. Professor, I'd like to shift a bit towards antitrust law. Sure. Uh, written a ton about. As a general matter, mm -hmm. broadly speaking, is antitrust law anti-capitalistic? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, I I couldn't say yes. I I mean, antitrust law of the the proponents of antitrust law, uh, some are anti-capitalistic, um, some are not. So I wouldn't. I can't say that in general, antitrust law is anti-capitalistic. Um, the, I mean, I, I suppose you could take a strong position, um, you could take a, a strong position that says it's anti-capitalistic because under the fullest recognition of property rights and uh, the, and, 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 and an effort to, um, you know, incentivize the benefits of capitalism, you could say, well, there should be no antitrust law at all because let's take section one of the Sherman Act that prohibits price fixing. Well, you could say, well, that's just a that's just a property rights question. You know, 
if if I own widgets, if I'm selling widgets and the guy next door is selling widgets, there are those are our widgets. And of course we can enter a contract that says that we're going to fix the price of widgets. They're our property. We can decide how to allocate our property. And what's the government doing telling us that we can't fix prices? Um, that's one view of Sherman Act section one. Uh, and then section two is the, is, the, is the part that prohibits monopolization. And you could say to that, well, what's monopolization? Well, monopolization is just taking your assets and using them, leveraging to the best of your ability to gain a greater market share. And you could say, well, that, that's what business is all about. You know, where, where did you come from? That's what, that's what every business is trying to do. Um, so you could say on that basis that the whole Sherman Act is anti-capitalistic. On the other hand, I, I think I think that's an extreme position. Um, the common law, uh, the common law took a, a, a fairly subtle position toward price fixing. The common law position toward price fixing was you can enter into price fixing agreements, but don't look to the courts to enforce those agreements. So those agreements, um, you know, if you want it, if you want them to be enforced, you just have to hope, hope that they'll be enforced. And if you go to court, the courts have to review those agreements and see, you know, whether the agreement has a legitimate basis or whether it seems to be purely an effort to take advantage of consumers of the, of the public, in which case the court would not enforce the agreement. So that's the position the common law took toward price fixing. The Sherman Act takes that a step further and says, well, not only is this unenforced, not only are these agreements unenforceable, but they're criminal as well. Okay. So um, you could say, well, you know, maybe that's not that big of a difference. Uh, you know, under the common law regime, you can't enforce these agreements under the Sherman Act. You can't enforce them and they're criminal as well. On the other hand, a different position you could take is that is a big difference, and and we should be concerned about that. But I, I, I guess I'll say those are those are those strike me as as at the first level empirical questions. Um, on a deeper level, they may be ethical questions as well, um, and I can explore that. I'm I'm happy to explore that. It will take maybe a few more minutes in this answer. I don't know if you're you're willing to grant me those few extra minutes, but uh, you say go for it. Okay. So here's the ethical question as well. I, so what is price fixing? Price fixing is you know I've got my widgets, you've got your widgets. We entered an agreement that we're going to fix the price of widgets. Who is that hurting? Well, well the consumer is paying more for widgets, but the consumer wants the widgets anyway. So the consumer is just not getting the best deal that he could have gotten on, on widgets. Well, that's something that happens all the time in life. I mean, you know what? You don't always get the best deal, you know, and there are all sorts of quote unquote markets where you don't, there's no, not a competitive structure. So, so there's a theory behind the prohibition of price fixing that you, you as the consumer have a right to a competitive structure in the market where that structure appears to exist, you know, naturally. But that doesn't appear in nature in any sense. I mean, we don't see competitive markets overall. If you enter into the marriage market, it's not a competitive market. You're, 
you're often stuck with who you have. <laughs> and that's it. You're not you're not comparing options. You're not saying, I could go with this one, or I could go with that one. <laughs> so there's so many real world choice questions where the competitive assumption it does not exist. Um, and so you could ask as a question of ethics, why should we think that the competitive background is default that should exist in any market at all? Uh, and why should we therefore say that the consumer has a right protected by the criminal laws to a competitive market? To me, that's that's a question that's worthy of debate. Um, and we've, uh, we've uh, adopted that assumption in our uh, Sherman Act and and therefore in our criminal law as well. Um, but again, I, 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 it's not clear to me that that these are uh, that these are these are obvious. These are questions with obvious answers, and so um, it's not clear to me that I would go that I would go so far as to say the Sherman Act is anti-capitalistic. Um, it does it does represent, I think, an important innovation in the law in America. I, I think before the Sherman Act, there were uh, you know, presumptions about what could happen in the market that were changed by the Sherman Act. Um, and the adoption of the Sherman Act has sort of worked itself gradually into uh, not only from not only from becoming a a change an innovation on the operating legal framework, uh, which was viewed as sort of novel, but now becoming sort of the default framework adopted by the court. So, for example, when the Supreme Court looks at the intellectual property laws now, it often adopts a default position uh, instructed by the Sherman Act which is in my view totally bizarre uh, because the intellectual property laws were designed to grant limited monopolies in a sense and monopoly may not be the right term but property rights and ideas which in some cases could be effectively monopolies and they weren't supposed to be touched by the sherman act at all but now uh, it's not uncommon for courts to adopt the Sherman Act as a default position when examining the intellectual property laws, which uh, strikes me to be a very serious mistake the courts have made uh, and continue to make. And you know, maybe uh, I don't know what what, will, what this will lead to as time continues. A few years ago, you wrote an article entitled "Digital Platforms and Antitrust Law." Yes. The how has the evolution of digital platforms of social media impacted antitrust law and intellectual property law, which you touched upon a second ago? Right. Uh, well, so far, not much. I mean, there have been the um, digital platforms and the dominance of some of these terms have caused uh, led to a lot of discussion in Congress, and so there there have been many discussions by legislators to enact uh, amendments to the antitrust laws or new versions, new types of antitrust uh, to govern the tech sector. And I don't think any of these proposals has made it into law so far. Um, I am, uh, but but the, the efforts continue. And, you know, if you pay attention and if you watch the, uh, 
you know, the legislative discussions and, and, and you know, hearings in the Senate, uh, it's not uncommon to see to see a lot of discussion about reforming the, the antitrust laws. Uh, and, you know, luckily, uh, it's, luckily, it's easy to keep track nowadays because so many of these senators are posting videos of, the, of their discussions on YouTube. So you can find a lot of these uh, these debates and discussions, you know, videotaped on YouTube. Um, which, by the way, is is pretty entertaining stuff. You know, if you have nothing to do, watching those videos can often be <laughs> both educational and entertaining. But anyway, back to the back to the subject of the discussion. Um, so that so far there hasn't been much of an impact uh, by these of the, the dominant dominance dominance of important platforms in the tech sector on the antitrust laws. Not much of an influence. Um, there, there is much, there's an effort as a result of this to reform the antitrust laws, which hasn't happened yet. Um, I feel myself, the antitrust laws are so flexible that the case for reform seems very weak to me because the Sherman Act itself is an extremely short statute, the most important part. In fact, you can summarize the Sherman Act in five words. So... The first three words are don't fix prices. That's section one. Second is don't monopolize. That's it. That's the Sherman Act, five words. Um, now, that leaves infinite space for the courts to innovate around those terms. And so you can bring any new technological development to the courts and say, this is an antitrust violation. And there's nothing that prevents the courts from adopting the law to deal with that problem in front of them because the law is so sparse, it can be applied to any kind of area, any kind of technological venture, wh whatever. There's nothing that prevents the courts from innovating. So I don't see, I don't see the, so the, the argument for amending or changing the Sherman Act because we have a new tech sector strikes me as totally unpersuasive. Um, but anyway, that's, there's, that, that, that's the argument that's often made. And it's led to a lot of effort in, in, in both in state legislatures. Actually, a lot of it's in state legislatures now uh, and in the federal legislature. Um, the, as far as the tech sector itself, yes, that's true that we have uh, dominant firms and, some of, the act, and the act, some of the activity they engage in has led to complaints and some of these complaints are, le are legitimate complaints. Um, I don't see a reason why the antitrust laws aren't capable of dealing with those complaints as, as they exist right now. Um, I do feel that that the dominance of a lot of these platforms is probably a short run or temporary phenomenon that will change over time as new innovation occurs, as, uh, as, as competitors, um, you know, enter into the market. Uh, so, you know, back a hundred years ago when the Sherman Act was passed, it was the railroads that, you know, were dominant firms and people felt the railroads were abusing everyone. And uh, now I don't think anyone views the railroads as abusive dominant firms anymore. Now you could you could say well that's a hundred years you know why shouldn't we wait a hundred years for things to change but um, but I think that uh, I don't think the, I don't think the Sherman Act had 
any impact itself on the structure of the railroad industry. Uh, and in fact, uh, the, to the extent that the Sherman Act was having any impact on the behavior of the railroad industry, the railroad industry, industry quickly fixed it by setting up a regulatory framework under the Interstate Commerce Commission that allowed it to continue to do what, what it was being prohibited from doing under the Sherman Act. So the same, I think the same threat would arise in the tech sector. So if the if we if the courts really began to um, change the conduct of the firms, the tech sector, they're powerful enough, I assume that they would be able to lobby for a regulatory framework from the federal government that would allow them to continue to do what they do uh, under a regulatory framework. Um, and I think there's some signs that that that's going on already. Professor, you've also written about uh, processes and legal concepts in the criminal law. Yes. Uh, an article entitled, Whom Should We Punish and How Rational Incentives? Right, right. Criminal justice. Are we doing punishment the right way here in the United States? Um, well, that's a that's hard. It's a hard question to give a simple answer to, but I think in some ways, no. Um, in, in fact, one of the uh, one of the charts that I oh, oh sorry just hit my camera accidentally uh one of the charts that I have in that paper which I find kind of interesting just shows the increase in the incarceration of women in the U.S. over the past 30 years or so and it's almost exponential growth if you look at it and it raises a question well have women become so seriously criminalistic over the past 30 years that we're putting you know, multiples more in prison and in jails than we did 30 years ago? And I think the answer is no. I think we've got laws that ensnare many more of them than we had back then. And and the correct purpose to me for imprisoning someone, for incarcerating someone, would be that they are, they are a danger to others, that you don't want to let this person out on the streets because they're not going to, they're, they're going to be harmful to other people. And that's true of basically, that's, how should I say? I mean, that's, that's probably true of maybe 1% of the women who are locked away. I mean, maybe 1% of them are dangerous to other people. And about 99%, you can, you can live, you know, outside of prison and there, then no problems would result. Uh, and so in that sense, you know, that's a clear example, in my view, of over-incarceration, of excessive use of the criminal laws, uh, and, and it's staring us right in the face. And there are huge social costs that result because these women uh, can't, well, like the men, they can't engage in legitimate work. But unlike the men, they can't take care of their own children, or they can't, you know, can't uh, engage in the activities that you know you say a mother could engage in uh, if they're locked up in prison um so i think there are huge social costs from having our, our policies that have led to the incarceration of, of so many women um the um the as far as the criminal laws go i mean it's it's sort of a, a complicated picture um 
you know, I think the example I just gave is, is, is I think, in my view, Exhibit A for the case that, that we've been incarcerating too many people too quickly. Now, of course, when you get to men, the question is much more difficult because now you do have a fair number of people who are dangerous to others. And so you have to be a little more careful about this over-incarceration question uh, when you get to men. Um, and uh, the, the one of the topics that I deal with in that paper is just the general expansion of the scope of the criminal laws. And you know, I offer the Sherman I offer the Sherman Act as one example. You know, here's an area where the, we have the criminal law, and I, I actually confront that ethical question that I raised a few minutes ago, which is, you know, is this an area where criminal punishment should be imposed? at all you know is it a criminal matter if the consumer uh, is is denied a competitive framework by a bunch of sellers and i think the case is probably i mean i i i think the answer is no actually um and so i make the, i do argue in that paper that um uh, the sherman act is an example of the of overexpansion. It's an old example, but you know, it's because it's an old example. It's a good example of the overexpansion of the criminal laws uh, that we were you were injecting them into areas. And so I I argue in that paper that there needs to be some scaling back of the scope of criminal laws, and that there should be a general presumption that market activities are not subject to the criminal laws uh, because market activities naturally involve a willing buyer and a willing seller so that would say for example that prostitution should be not criminal should not be criminalized because it's a willing buyer and a willing seller and a lot of cases of drugs i suppose the same argument would go i mean certainly in the case of, of marijuana the case for criminalization appears to be totally uh you know unpersuasive and of course we've moved beyond that the more difficult question is what about other drugs, you know? And, and I admit there might be cases where the external harms are so great that maybe you'd say, okay, we might have to maintain the criminal laws in, in this context. I think the presumption is that, they, that the criminal laws don't apply. And the operative rule would be if the external harm is extremely great, extremely high, the criminal laws might be extended uh, in those areas. Uh, and so if you had a drug, you know, maybe fentanyl might be an, an exception. You know, maybe, maybe just fentanyl is said to be so deadly uh, that you might make an exception for that because um, there isn't much of a, a possibility for someone to control its effects. Um, but in the case where you have drugs that people use and they have some ability to decide rationally whether they're going to take them uh, and the drug doesn't necessarily immediately lead to death or destruction or something like that then i think i'd be more inclined to i mean what i argue for in the article is limiting the criminal laws to the harm to the harmful behavior and the harmful effects that result from those drugs not from the drugs themselves so, for example, uh, if there's some particular drug someone takes that leads them to act irresponsibly 
and hurt others as a result. You would make them criminally punishable, punishable for the harm they do to others. And you could even enhance the penalties in my view. You could even say, we'll give you more time in prison because you harmed others under the influence of the drugs you were taking or under the influence of alcohol, but they would not be punishable just for taking the drugs or just for consuming the alcohol or, or, or whatever. And it strikes me that's a more sensible approach to criminal enforcement in this area. Uh, otherwise, um, you know, what we're doing now to get back to the example of body parts, we're, we're encouraging black markets uh, and, and those black markets, they're encouraged to bring in people who, uh, who are criminals. Uh, they enforce their agreements with violence. And of course that just contributes to uh, the incidents of harm in society. Themes that we claim to rehabilitate, right? The question is whether or not the policies in place actually uh, move in that direction. Well, I suppose some people are rehabilitated. I think, again, I think the, the question is, and, and if, if, if it's the incarceration question that you're raising, I think the question is, again, is this person a danger to society? Because to me, that's the basis for holding someone. We don't hold someone to make them, we don't hold someone because we think uh, we can make you better, you know, uh, but if you, because if you're not a danger for society, there's no basis for holding the person against his or her will. And certainly the notion that we are going to make you a better person is not a basis for holding anyone at any time who's not a danger to society. By the way, this has a broad implication because we do so not only under the criminal laws, we do so uh, under the basis of mental health, uh, you know, controls as well. So there are people being held in prisons in mental hospitals against their will on the theory that we're trying to help you, you know, and some of these people are not dangerous to others. So my claim is that those people, if they're not a danger to others, they should be free to, to leave. They shouldn't be um, incarcerated. Uh, now, of course, that this I, I do want to distinguish this from the homelessness problem because, you know, one of the effects of de of the de incarceration that occurred earlier with respect to mental hospitals, people have said, is an increase in homelessness. I think the homelessness issues is a slightly different problem, and it should be dealt with in different ways. I think right now I'm just confining the discussion to criminal punishment and the holding of people for rehabilitation purposes, things like that. Uh, and so I would say that, again, the, the only basis for holding someone in prison or, or in jail is that they're a threat, a danger to someone else. If they're not a danger to someone else, uh, no, we don't hold them. And, and we, don't, we don't even hold them if they're a danger. I would be actually somewhat reluctant to hold someone even if they're a danger to themselves. But let's say if there were solid evidence that they were dangerous themselves, if there had been evidence that they had attempted to commit suicide, maybe that's a basis for holding the person against his or her will. But if they're simply a danger, that if, let's say some state um, psychotherapist looks at a criminal suspect and says, I think you're a danger to yourself. There's no clear evidence you're a danger to yourself, but I think you're a danger to yourself. That's not a basis for holding someone. That's you know that that ought to be that would be actionable, you know, uh, oppression. I don't know what what 
legal claim you know, the, you know, the people being held behind bars on the basis of those theories already, right now as we speak. Well, Professor, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Sure. Um, very much appreciate it once again. Well, you're welcome. And thank you very much for this conversation.